映画ナイト。
I think as it was meant to do, I do think Oshin is a director that loves to provoke. He loves to be controversial. More power to him. <laughs> and speaking of provocation and controversy, uh, today's episode is on a very, very interesting relic of 1990s anime. Would you like to tell them what we're doing? Yes, we are going to be discussing uh, Ikahara's 1999 uh, film, Adolescence of Mikenna, which was an independent film that stood separate from the anime series Revolutionary Girl in Italy. But separate from it, but very much uh, like intertwined. intertwined with it. I feel like, and we'll get into this, it's near impossible to really appreciate this film or even maybe even follow it without an understanding of the series, at least like the bare bones of it. Because it is taking some massive liberties with the original story uh, by Chiho Saito, who did the ma manga. Uh, again, all these uh, all these creators were a part of the collective B Papas, who were just a wonderful uh, like fringe kind of creative team that made this without much oversight, other than some producers and some editors. And a very small team, for that matter. I do believe it was comprised of about six people or so, with Chiho Saito included. Mm. Quite small, quite niche. And I think that nicheness speaks to the anime itself once we get into it. The, the niche speaks to like the passion of the project because there was like mm -hmm. no one really telling them no. Although there were plenty of people telling them no eventually. <laughs> but there was like a kind of freedom of it that you don't really see in like the commerce kind of environment of anime production nowadays. This was like a full on creator's passion project. And it took a lot of like inspiration from the works that he's done before that. But yes, uh, the film we're doing today is Adolescence of Ikuna, like you said, released in 1999, uh, directed by series director uh, Kunihiko Ikuhara. Ikuhara. Uh, why pick this movie, Nikita? It always resonated with me, and I, I grew up loving Revolutionary Girl Utena, the series. I was you know, 13 years old, picked up the manga, I fell in love with the art and the storyline. And I was delighted to learn that there was a film. The film always fascinated me and stumped me, and I've never been able to fully understand it, and I love that. It has a sense of mystery to it. And on top of that, it, it, it's beautiful, and the production values are so gorgeous. And it was always a film that I carried through my adolescence and at, through my teen years, and it always spoke to me and resonated with me as feminist piece as well and it just holds so much sentimental value for me and I think it's worth reanalyzing because it's so complex, dense and, and nuanced. It's a treat really. Right, this was a this was like a fragment of your childhood. Like was this like one of your kind of like main introductions to anime or was there like a history there beforehand? No, I as I said, I'm not an anime expert, but I do recall Utena being really the one and only anime I ever really followed or the one I would watch on a daily basis. Uh, I never got into the after show cartoons, so for me, Utena was everything. I dabbled with a little bit of shoujo here and there, uh, Strawberry Panic and Tokyo Mew Mew, <laughs> but, and noir as well, that was sort of a, another woman-centered anime, but Utena was still the crown jewel. <laughs> in my very, very small selection. Yeah, speaking of, like, uh, I did not watch this as a kid, uh, possibly because, you know, as a, like, as, as a cishet male, like, I was kind of inundated into the, you know, 
shonen style of mm-hmm. anime and manga where it's like I have to see you know tough guys beating each other up in order to like really get the entertainment out of it. Uh, thankfully, I have completely shedded that full personality myself, and <laughs> I believe I watched this original series like somewhere in my like late teens, like around seventeen, eighteen. Okay. I, I remember that's the first time I tracked the series down after a recommendation. Uh, went through most of it, finished it years later, and the the film itself has always been the kind of like a curiosity for me uh, because I've always heard it's this rever- reverence for it in like anime circles of this uh, game changing, uh, very very surreal type of entertainment that was born out of a the series and that was like it completely it completely altered like the landscape of anime when it was released. It's like this very kind of introspective style that's a very traditional in the shoujo manga that was like rendered large on the screen and i was always kind of fascinated by it and when i finally tracked it down i was confused by it as most people were i think it took a long time to digest even today after we just recently watched it before recording uh a lot of it is still kind of a mystery to me and like i think you said like that's part of the point i feel like, I like the fact that there is this kind of intrigue surrounding it, that it's not cut and dry, that a lot of it is up to interpretation, and a lot of it is up to, like, a creator being frustrating. If the hero has not given us any hints or clues, trust me, we've looked for all of them. He is deliberately uh, elusive about many of the plot points in the film and many of the reasons behind why certain characters do certain things, and we'll get into that a little bit more in detail, but it's... It's stunning. It's a very mysterious, very beautiful uh, art form. He, he strings it along by kind of like giving you the, like the setup of the original series to an extent. Like, like the characters are there, the kind of overarching plot is referred to, but then eventually it just goes into the character's psyche and spins right out of control. Do we want to tell them a little bit about the story of Hatano, what it's about? And uh, if you could, because <laughs> yes. uh, like, like when I said, like I watched it when I was seventeen. I have not revisited it in forever. I've, That's fair. But actually, the entire series is available on YouTube. Yes, I have noticed that. I have the entire series in a special edition box set. We're, we're all impressed with you. <laughs> that, you are the true fan. That came out about six, seven years ago. And even today, I've got the original first edition with Revolutionary Girl, Adolescent Psyche 29, that I was meant to do as my reference. Well, the series, if I remember correctly, 39 episodes. 39 episodes, yeah. Uh, Revolutionary Girl Ratano, that was the original name. It is a, about a young woman named Hikana Tenjo, and we are introduced to her initially in the series as a damsel in distress. She is a woman who has lost her parents, and she is essentially rescued from, uh, from sorrow from a prince, and she then has a resolution to become not a princess growing up, but to be a prince and to have a noble heart and a real um, fighting spirit. It's a really funny introduction to that because like the, the whole, it subverts that trope immediately because she's rescued by a prince and thinks like, I want to do that. Of course. It, it, and it's, just, it's played off so like casually and just like, that's a completely logical conclusion. Like, why would you not want to have that kind of like nobility, that kind of grace, that kind of good like goodwill towards other people. And I, I think perhaps that's why I was so fascinated with Hikana in my early teens, because I was about the same age as the Hikana character. She was 13, 14 at the mm-hmm. time. 
and all, she wanted to be a prince and strong and independent. So I was in, completely infatuated with that idea. And then Yutena, getting back to the series, she enrolls in a prestigious uh, private school, Otori Academy, and there she becomes embroiled in the politics of uh, dueling with the student council and uh, fighting for the very elusive and mysterious Rose Bride. And of course, the Rose Bride is Anthea Femenia, a sort of uh, mystery woman that carries a rose, uh, excuse me, a sword <laughs> in her bosom. It's, and it's so bizarre, it's so beautiful. And the chasing of this bride is like embroiled in this whole like shadow organization plot <laughs> about the end of the world and magic and it's... And the ability to revolutionize the world. That's something that's repeated every episode. The power to revolutionize the world. Yeah, it's, it's a... It's not very well explained throughout the entire series because, like, it's not supposed to be. It's a, it's mm -mm. it's leading all up to after the several arcs of the the series goes through with these different characters and their plots, uh, usually centered around Utana like dueling a new person over the Rose Bride. It becomes a like a very a very interesting kind of antagonist plot in the end, involving the he's like the headmaster of the school, like. He's the acting chairman, acting chairman of, the school. Okay. <laughs> of Otori Academy, and his name is uh, Akio, Akio Otori. Not, not like these plots matter for the movie we're talking about today, at least to an extent. Well, in a, you'll find out it does to a degree because there's so many tie-ins with these characters and then the others since it became a film, but we'll get into that. Mm -hmm. And so the series concludes, uh, and the I believe the production of the film began soon right after that. Yes, they went out independently. Mm -hmm. I, it was still, I believe it was still produced by the original uh, staff that did, the original company that did the series, uh, JC Staff. Yeah. But I think they were given, because it was a, you know, feature length, uh, theatrical, theatrically released thing, they were given a lot more freedom in terms of what they were allowed to do, and they decided to change pretty much everything. And it shows, I think, that level of freedom that is granted them shows very much with throughout the film, and they very uh, happily ran with it, as the saying goes. Uh, if you're wondering, um, the way this film is kind of described in a lot of anime cycles is the end of Utena, a reference to the end of the end of Evangelion. Huh. That same kind of like this is a series ender, which is so foreign to what we expected, so radically different that it has it invokes that same kind of reaction of like. This is a different product all on its own, but we can't separate it from the larger body. It becomes difficult, I think, to watch the film independently of the series. You definitely, it would be very helpful if you had some context from the actual episode series of Utena. If you're going to dive right into the film, there's a lot of. I think Ikahara was using the film as to finish off a lot of components he couldn't say in the series, perhaps, and he was trying to tie off loose ends and really give a, a strong illustration of what freedom really means and what freedom, autonomy means. But not, not from like a narrative standpoint, because the story in Adolescence of Utena is very much fragmented, hard to follow. It's, uh, it's more about like doing justice by these characters. Like it, it wants to like kind of finish those arcs of their like internal struggles and kind of solve that c the conflict that they had, and using the basis of the series to do that, the the film mm. pulls out a lot from it, but at the same time, 
is very much interested in his own design. In Adolescence of Utena, Ikahara gives his characters the same problems they were toiling with in the uh, anime series. For example, Jiri is a character that is still uh, agonizing over her uh, sort of secret love for another young girl that she has for uh, on campus. And the same sort of romances pervade in the film, but they are uh, magnified and, con- and essentially resolved in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like it, the film begins just like the kind of like the first episode does, or yeah. to an extent. Like it's like you can see the the DNA of uh, the original Utena series like on full display, but you just notice some several key factors, as in like characters have different roles, um, they have different personalities sometimes, different looks as well. Oh, the the looks in this film, like uh, we were talking about this uh, during the actual showing of the film that we watched. It just like you can tell they had much more budget in this <laughs> film. Th- that academy. The way they set that academy up as this impossible labyrinth of moving stairwells and hallways. What it's was the painter you referenced? Oh, M.C. Escher. It's like MC Escher. it's a moving M.C. Escher painting, and it's it's beautiful. It's amazing. At the same time, it's like this is so elaborate. What's why? It's so <laughs> striking and elaborate. I think almost for the sake of being elaborate and striking. I can see that. Yeah. It's really just a, an artistic expression being being conveyed here through architecture and I've read quite a bit about the production of the film and the craftsmanship that went into it, the way that all uh, all of the um, the layouts and the designs, they were hand painted and hand drawn and layered to give uh, dimension and depth to the scenes and just the quality and attention to detail is prevalent consistently throughout the film, it's incredible yeah, That's why it's like a, a game changer in terms of like an artistic perspective because like the uses of like composition uh like perspective shots and like foreground and background in a lot of these uh in a lot of these labyrinthine kind of tours through this academy it's it's breathtaking sometimes and and you know the film is almost 20 years old it looks great still i think it it's aged quite well in the sense that it's uh like the visuals and the themes it's like it's incredibly relevant even today like uh, you, you can like uh search up some several kind of like personal essays people have wrote about it, and this is like th- this film and like the series in general has like inspired many people to like question their sexuality, uh, to transition into uh different genders. It's like it's a very kind of powerful statement on that. And that transition, of course, from adolescence into adulthood, and Ikahara has spoken quite frankly about how this film served as a metaphor for his own journey from childhood into adulthood, but. Again, he's always rather tight-lipped on the subject. It's interesting that he was able to, like, well, technically the, the film itself was written by uh, uh, Yoji and, and Okoto. So it's like, that was it was his strip technically, but uh, Ikuhara, like, for being able to represent these uh, two women's, uh, like, internal struggle with their identities and its constant shifting, it shows a great deal of sympathy and empathy towards that kind of state of mind. And as I said, I'm a huge Utena fan. They it's coming across, don't they worry, had, they know. <laughs> they had re- recently re-released the Utena manga box set, and it was completely redone. Uh, it was restored and retranslated. But there was a section, I remember quite clearly, of Ikahara was describing of how when he was a young boy, what it meant to him to revolutionize the world, and how he wanted that power for himself, and wanted that transition into adulthood in a way where he came up uh, the stronger person. 
So I, I do think, you know, adolescence everything is a, a love letter to those desires and to those states of ideals. And it can be much more explicit about that, not only because it's a feature film, but because there, there was a lot of controversies with the original series and the manga by, uh, by Psycho, because there was a lot of producers telling them to, like, tone down the LGBT kind of, like, plot yes. lines and yeah. storylines, and with Adolescence of Lucan, they just let it fly. It's interesting. There was a, a sequence where Anthe, in the film, s uh, s spontaneously kisses Utena mid-air, I should add. They're flying through the air. This film is all eye candy. There's a lot of that, where it's like, and whatever looks great, we'll do it. And Ikahara was explaining that his staff initially said, well, why don't you make them seem like they're just about to kiss? But then, let's not have them kiss. And Ikahara said, well, no, I want them to kiss. No particular reason. I just think it'll look good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it does. It looks, it looks gorgeous. And it also sort of deepens the relationship between Utena and Anthe to something more romantically inclined and less friendship-based as the series really played out. I think you kind of stumbled onto like the statement of this entire film. Like, I don't care. It looks good. Yes. And, of course, there's a lot of meaning imbued into these scenes of just gorgeous eye candy and beautiful characters doing very beautiful things. <laughs> yes, they're always so elegant. Even the way they uh, duel with their fencing and their swords, it's a very, it's almost like dancing. And the way that they, the way the fight scenes are choreographed, it, it's so graceful. There, there's so much nobility, like, folded into nobility. every action, every kind of thing that they do. It's, and it, it, that's why it's kind of, like, fine to, to be mesmerized and not really, like, follow the plot or get lost once in a while. It, it just, like, it just strings you along with these gorgeous tableaus. It's, like, and you can kind of get it from the way, like, the setting is set up and, like, all, all of the, uh, like, like, the way the film is designed, it kind of cues, clues you in into what they're trying to say. How can we describe to viewers what the film would be about in that case? We've described the series pretty well. Well, the, the film is a takeoff of the series, uh, but independent of it, like we said. Um, some like A lot of the characters do show up again in similar roles. And for, for the most part, it's just a, like, it's kind of like... It's so hard to explain. It, it's, a, it's kind of about abandoning that original series, though, especially with that ending. At least that was my kind of takeaway, wherein the, the series had, like, this very dense mythology and a very kind of, like, very uh, allure to it. Uh, the film from that but at the same time it doesn't build its own it just kind of leaves it all behind and interestingly and of course it's going to be spoilers here in the original series Utena she disappears and she becomes this very sort of mythic figure she becomes a, a legend in and of herself a prince in her own right kind of and it is Anthe who in the end of the series gains autonomy for herself and the ability to move away from a Tory academy and the clutches of her brother and her brother's uh, larger sort of schemes for a kind of uh, domination of other people. And I think Ikahara in the film takes those same concepts and just rather than say Utena becomes this princely mythic figure, he has them both fall into the sunset and ready to revolutionize their own world. Does that make sense? It does, or at least from the, like what we're talking about. Like, for this uh, film, that makes sense. Sure, I hope so. It's uh, it's really hard to relay this plot because, one, you need you kind of need an understanding of the series. Actually, I think it's almost required. And, two, 
the plot is so superficial to the mood of the film. Like, yes, there's there's like a growing kind of conspiracy towards, you know, the, the Duelist Club and what its purpose is, but it's not resolved. Like, like that whole idea, the, the whole idea of the series, like the bringing back the resurrecting the magic of the Rose Bride and yes. ending the world or revolutionizing the world. It's like that's referred to in that one phone call we get with Akio <laughs> yes, in the do. ghost room with Toga. That that makes perfect <laughs> we'll sense, talk by the way. The ghost room. It's, it's a room, believe me, it's just white sheets covering everything, including Toga at one point. Um, who is, what was her name? She was... Was it Shiori? Shiori. Shiori's there, yeah. She was there, too, talking with Toga and listening to him. It was very bizarre. Yeah, the, the film on a whole is very, very bizarre. And what do we say about it? Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the... I think the differences. I, I really want to talk about the Rose Bride. Oh, go ahead. And Fujinami Yami. Did you want to talk about her? Yeah, of course. Like, uh, well, what did you think of her? Do you like her as a character? Do you think she's problematic? Uh, I think she is, uh, to an extent, problematic. But that was a part of the design. It was it was on purpose because we are she, because she's learning to she's learning her own autonomy and agency, and so that she has to start off at a very kind of like unflattering place. Right. And, but of course, that is born out of a sense of trauma, so. And I think as a character, she's a very sort of um, curious sort of antagonist. And also, I was always intrigued that she is a woman of color. Mm-hmm, and that's it's, true. it's implied that she is Indian. And it's never explained that she's just a woman of color that becomes, in, uh, that is uh, also deemed a witch. Mm-hmm. I, I think what Ikahara is doing here is giving Anfu a further sense of otherness. You know, she gives us a very literal sort of illustration of otherness. She's not just a mysterious witch-like magical woman that has a sword buried in her heart, but she's also a woman of color that really stands out when placed against the protagonist, Kenna, Kenjo, and the rest of student council members and like in the original series she's a very like deeply ambiguous figure and like she her character takes like a kind of a dark turn near the end and she doesn't talk much right she's very sort of a quiet she's soft-spoken young person she's a bit of like a a a doormat slash like uh servant to like who like i guess it's the the rose bride's kind of role but it's kind of taken to a really dark place with the series and with the film it kind of like it kind of rectifies that, that, that kind of earlier, the, the earlier like deception of her character is kind of like left up to a more, a positive place. I feel even though there's still that remnant of like, we don't know her motivations and it's really kind of off-putting. Uh, she's a doll. I do think that she is almost like a beautiful porcelain doll, but oh, now, now you're talking like that green-haired man. <laughs> oh, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm, I'm objectifying her. No, but I, I think there's a purpose to that. I think she's supposed to look quite. Uh, delicate and uh, in a way passive but when she does have that sort of mercurial shift it really is incredible to see her transformation Uh, and by the way in the film it's never explained how she has this sort of magical sword imbibed in her chest it's never explained why she's the rose bride and the series plays with that a little bit more well the whole idea of like the sword of bios and like those kind of arcs in the the series the sword of god essentially yeah not there not there. There's no connection. Like the film 
drops that. The sword is there. The sword is very no, much No, the sword present. is there, but, like, the reasoning behind it, like, the explanation, it's, you, you it's don't get it. It's subtracted from the film entirely, but at the same time, I, I think Ikuhara figures, well, we don't really need the context. Anthe is a magical being. She has a sword within her. Uh, Roll she, with it. She has the power to... He who possesses the rosebud has the power to revolutionize the world. And I think that's the same kind of concept they're playing with here. And I, I like the, I like that you called her like a doll because I don't like that you called her a doll, but it's an accurate description. Because like she's quite literally a trophy wife. She is. And even in the manga, there is a scene where Yutena wakes up from a bad dream and she sees Anthe hovering over her and she calls her a tragic doll. Let me save you. You're what a beautiful doll you are. Yeah, and like that kind of relationship is kind of turned on its head in this film. Like again, like we're mm. we're taking so much from the original series, but just tweaking it ever so slightly to this entire new context and meaning, which I think there's value. I honestly think there is value in entering this film with no prior knowledge of the series. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Because I feel like that the moods and that they're going for and the atmosphere that they create speak much louder when you're not bogged down by like, well, they're not doing this plot line. They're not like, these characters aren't making sense right now. Because it's a very kind of emotional, uh, introspective piece on these characters. So I feel like that without being bogged down by so much plot and series, although the series is great and you should absolutely watch it, I feel that like that position of coming into the series with Adolescence of Utena, there is a... It's an interesting way to, to like experience it all. Th that's how I entered into Evangelion, actually. Like I watched some of the, the series, and then I went right to end of Evangelion. Right. Because I was told, like this is a really disturbing movie, and it makes <laughs> no sense. I'm like, well, i got to get into some of that. And it was interesting, yeah. I, I think where Anthe is concerned, Ikahara does expand on one notion quite explicitly, and that's her sexuality. And I was always fascinated by that, because she is very clearly here using her sexuality as a means of manipulation. She, uh, she, in a way, she she knows what she is, and she's using her her sexuality as a means of of access and accessibility. But also, it serves as her disability at mm -hmm. the same time. It, it's a it's a burden for her, and she has no other. She finds no other way of expressing her sexuality than being used or being manipulated in that regard. And in, in addition to that, like the gay subtext and that eventually became text with the series to an extent is flagrantly just text here. Like there is no kind of like ambiguity about it. They're not skidding around it. They, in this, Ikahara says, yes, they are lovers. They are romantically inclined to one another. Great. Utena <laughs> and Anthony are, Anthe, sorry, Utena and Anthe are gay. Keep scrolling. <laughs> yes, exactly. Very pretty gay couple, by the way. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, so where do we take it from here? Because there's a, despite the fact that there is not a lot of plot, there is actually a lot of plot. Well, I'm just trying to think of where's a good jumping off point. How about, I, I mean, do you want to discuss, we've talked about Anthe, how about Utena? I was speaking earlier before we were recording that she, She's transforming constantly throughout the film, and I think this is very evident in her appearance. Mm -hmm. Anthe is relatively the same throughout the, throughout the film, but Utena goes through magical, unexplained transformations. The minute a duel starts, her hair becomes long, 
She gets like a royal prince outfit. And, like, she gets a, a, a almost a military outfit, mm-hmm. a military suit. Really, she even has the shoulder pads. Those like wonderfully like tasseled sh- oh, shoulder pads. It's so wonderful. Oh, and every time she duels, all of a sudden her long pants become short shorts. I don't know why. I I think I know why. <laughs> And that's a, the fun thing about those transformations is like um, Ikuhara worked on Sailor Moon for a number of years, mm-hmm. and Utena itself is a like somewhat of a commentary on the genre of magical girl because it's subverting that trope of the damsel, as in like the the girl is like the, and the transformation is like to transform like your sexuality and gender into like, another kind of form, uh, and this film is also doing that because like the transformations are very they're they're not like flashy. Uh, no, they're subtle. Yeah, they, they they happen very fast, like with a flash of light, or not even that, like in in silhouette, and it's it kind of like undermines the whole idea of a transformation being this m- massive kind of deal. It it kind of like normalizes it, except for the ending transformation, which we will get to because there's a lot to say about that shit. It's almost as though the transformations are uh, to be taken for granted in this film. All the characters transform; they don't question it. It seems very natural, and it follows the follows the linear events of the magical activities very and simply. not explained. No, and not, why not? Why explain it? Um, like, Utena does not, like, wave a magical rod like Sailor Moon does. She never has, like, a moon bizarre power <laughs> transformation sequence. She does um, have a, she does, in many instances, take a breath, and she feels the transformation um, imbibe over her. But, uh... Because you know how, like, a magical transformation looks, right? It's like that a silhouette of their, of their oral clothes shedding yes. and like it's a very kind of like uh it's part you know showing a, a, a very flashy kind of thing also part like titillation uh this one has none of that it's just like we are in our dueling outfit utena does have a big transformation sequence later on uh, to epic proportions but that will which probably frustrates so many people about this movie it's a, it's a i think it's a very much like you either love this ending or you hate this ending because We'll get to it. We'll, we'll just not get spoil we'll just the get ending just yet. Okay, in the film, I'm to sort of summarize what happens. Utena fights um, Toga's friend. What was his name? The green-haired fellow. Uh, Sayonji. Sayonji. She wins Amphihimania in a duel. They become uh, rosebud and fiance. I guess they become engaged. They become engaged to each other because, like, uh, the. Co- because with the series, it's all about this like dueling kind of club, like the Seal of the Rose, and super fancy club they do for this movie. And Utena kind of like lucks into it by accident. How does she find her ring? It's she she finds it in a white rose, just that that pearls in front of her. Yes. Why is it in there? Yeah, <laughs> we don't know. And then what does Utena do after she finds her beautiful ring? She goes to visit a floating rose garden elevated in the sky talk about that for a second like yes this is this is like a complete like don't question it like Mm-mm. you're thinking about it stop thinking about it this is completely illogical and it's wonderful it is complete magic complete nonsense and it's just like this is a very kind of evocative image so we're just gonna throw it in there and link it back into the theme of it all it's 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 essentially a, a rose garden that's elevated from underground completely it lives on its own sphere of existence and this is of course the place is the space that Anthe dwells in it's the space where she is most comfortable yeah, she tends to that rose garden and that and her tending to the garden is what she see what she believes in is her responsibility 
it's the garden is hers and she is very much the garden simultaneously and it's the dueling ground for the student council for the first duel yes this is where yutena gets to show off her natural dueling abilities with sayonji uh, she is uh, once sayonji sees that yutena wears the duelist ring she is uh, challenged by sayonji she's actually egged into it when uh, sayonji essentially hits sayonji and Yutena is spurred into action and says, don't hit your girlfriend. You sh can't do that. And he says, who says I can? And Revolutionary girl Utena says, respect women. Yes, it's a feminist piece of the 90s. And it really is, you know, feminist uh, examples of anime films. Well, for anime films, possibly, but, uh, I mean, it's always existed to an extent. Yeah. In, like, in the realm of especially shoujo and seinen. Yes, seinen manga. As well as, like, you know, I mean, Ghibli was making films at this point. That's true, yes. By the way, Yutena in that initial duel, she doesn't have a sword, she's handicapped, but I love the way she just picks a, a what was it, a straw broom? It was a straw broom, yeah. That she says, now I have the sword, and she just wields it with so much strength, it, it was very admirable. And in very kind of like anime protagonist fashion, she just kind of like gets into this whole situation that's much bigger than her, and she has absolutely no understanding of it, but she sees one goal, it's like, hey, don't hit that girl. And that's that's her motivation. Yeah. Not realizing like that it's going to get into a lot of, in the series at least, it's going to get into a lot of stuff. Do you want to talk a little bit about the music that's playing while the duels go on? The music just in general. Okay, so... <laughs> Uh, the composer for this, it was a team composer of Shinikichi uh, Mitsu Mitsumune, I believe, and J.A. Caesar, or Julius Anton Caesar. That's that name, by the way. Arna Caesar. Amazing. Uh, yeah, so it's essentially a rock opera. <laughs> there is, uh, I guess it is, is that you, get, you are treated to a very full rock choir for every duel uh, that Yutena fights in the film. Just shrieking these overtures over the, this beautifully animated fight scene. It's like, it, it goes for a very specific mood, and I think it hits it. Yeah, what sort of mood would that be? Just, like, cataclysmic, world-ending, <laughs> like, like everything, all the passion is welled up into this one confrontation. Like, it, it makes it seem like the most important goddamn thing in the world, and it turns out it is. It's essentially, I think, revolutionary. I'm going to get so tired of using that word. And every, how should I say, the music elevates every single duel into something that's almost not mortal. It becomes a very sort of surreal experience. It feels like a battle of gods. Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. But the music can also be quite gentle, can't it? There are moments where the music imbibes it with a romantic sort of atmosphere, especially in one of my favorite scenes. We'll, we'll talk about that at length, but like, okay. I, I feel like that uh, J.E. Caesar's uh, contribution to this group, because uh, he's a very kind of like avant-garde composer, it, and uh, mostly with theater music, so yeah. I, I feel like he contributed the rock operas while like the more kind of subtle uh, orchestral stuff was done by the other composer. Right. Uh, Shinkichi Mitsumune. And like that kind of collaboration works so well because it's it's imbued into the very idea of the A-Pods. Like the whole idea of a collaborative work all working towards one goal. And God, the music is so good. I think, we're gonna, I think I'm going to close this episode out with one of the songs just for fun. I think... Uh, I should have brought my Revolutionary Girl uh, soundtrack collection. I think it's about eight or nine discs that it was released. It was special edition uh, box set for all the music from both the series as a whole and the actual film soundtrack. It, it's 
such a treat. If you have a chance, go and listen to the soundtrack for the film. Go and try and find the soundtrack for the episodes. Um, these these are the songs that are used and not used throughout the series, and you can see how Ikahara lovingly picked every single song, and it it just goes so well. It's very difficult to describe. It's, it's such a strange combination that you wouldn't expect to work because it's this whole idea of like a kind of like castles, medieval kind of style of like nobility and you just have this like blistering guitar rock <laughs> underneath it all yeah. as they like do their duel over the Rose Bride. And a lot of piano music too. If you like piano music, <laughs> you would probably get into the Utena world uh, of music. It's the Sunlit Garden, I think that was the name of Piano King. That oh, you know the names, good lord. That kept reoccurring. Da 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 That is the Sunlit Garden theme, which is actually Miki's theme. But uh, there's a line that Miki and his sister share in the film where he says, we won't be able to return to the garden again. And that's an, a little homage to the series where Miki would play piano in the garden with his sister, and they would play the Sunlit Garden together. I know we're far off track, guys. No, it's good, because, uh, <laughs> like I said, like I have not revisited the series in forever. I know the basis of it, but, man, there's just so much to it. Very rich. So, like, Utena wins Anfi as the Rose Bride. Yes. And then we get to that one scene that is makes, like, the subtext of uh, queerness of the original series kind of, like, very explicit and very surface. Of We learn that, like, it was kind of referred to in the series about the Rose Bride's purpose, but not fully kind of, this was not a part of it, at least not explicitly, is that she is the, she, she does what her, whoever she's engaged to, she does what they say, and that includes sex. And there's this strange sort of uh, intimate scene that Ikahara gives us where Anthe attempts to seduce <laughs> our hero, Utena, in, uh, in her bedroom. In her bedroom, in her dorm yeah, room. Yeah, in her dorm room. By the way, for such a small dorm room, they had such a large bed <laughs> that the two of them are, are seen together, and it's just full of fabric and sheets. See, you've seen this academy. It goes on for fucking ever. <laughs> of, course they can, of course they can have a, a nice, decent a nice room size. A nice, size bed to go with, of course. But, uh, of course, Utena is not really interested, uh, particularly in this moment, in Anthe in a sexual way. She says, stop kidding around. I'm not into that. And she's almost reasserting her femininity in that scene. I'm a girl. I'm not into this. But then we'll see later on that there is a bit of a shift there. Interesting. I, I know she says that, but I felt like it was more more along the lines of not like because of my gender I'm not interested in. Like I don't like the fact that it's a requirement. Oh, that that's also the case. I saw it more of she's still reeling from a previous relationship with her first boyfriend. Toga from the series, who is kind of like relegated to a, a support role in the in the film. Ooh, what a support role it is! And uh, I think she's still hurting from that first relationship, the way it ended there, the way it ended so suddenly, as you'll find out. So I think it can be taken both ways. On the one hand, she's saying, "I'm a woman. I'm not interested in girls." And on the other, she's saying, "I'm still very fragile from the break of my first real relationship I had overwhelmingly. And the exiting of adolescence is also kind of like, for Utena, is also kind of accepting of her expanding sexuality and the, and the kind of contours that it's going to have eventually. So this is kind of like an important step in, yeah. in that, that scene. It's very kind of like, 
is telling a lot about their current state and especially the next scene that they have together of the the next important scene they have together of the uh, art class drawings oh yes that's right but before we get to the art class drawing you missed a very important part i'm sure i did we didn't get to the part where they had that beautiful set of dancing scenes oh please you take the reins on this one because this is you you've told me that you had this like downloaded and you watched it all the time (laughs) in the days of the little ipod mini i would have um well it was the little ipod touch tiny one i had that sequence downloaded to that thing and i would watch it every night and it took me to sleep it was so beautiful and um ikahara has gone on record saying it is one of the sequences he is most proud of because of how beautiful it turned out as he should be it's you actually just have to see it to kind of get the full impact of it all. Well, there is a line that Toga tells Utena, it's sort of a, a throwaway line, where he says, we never got the chance to go to the planetarium, the planetarium, of course, being space where you can look at stars and, and the night sky. Yeah, and like this is uh, Utena like, confronting Toga, like after realizing that he also enrolled in this academy that we are led to believe. And there is this confrontation between Utena and Ampi, where Utena very violently and and viciously (laughs) accuses Ampi of taking Toga away from her. And she blames Ampi for uh, ending the relationship that Utena had with Toga. Because Toga has the the ring, the the Rose Bride dueling ring. Which Utena mistakes for an engagement ring. And also that after like the night that they had together, she realizes what the Rose Bride does. Yes. So it's like if she puts one on one together and gets the wrong answer and just kind of explodes at Ampi. Rings, you know, blatant sexuality. Um, you took my man. So she has a bit of a, uh, a, con- a very vivid confrontation with her. And then uh, there is a moment where Utena falls asleep. Ampi is uh, essentially... How would you call it? Nursing Utena? Just caressing her hair. Caressing her hair. What did you call that scene? I just called them like these, there's a lot of them in this film. These kind of like very soft comfort scenes. It's like where everything just kind of slows down and it's just this very, very subtle motion. Because there's a lot of them in this film of characters just doing nothing really. And it's just, except for kind of establishing a very soft, welcoming mood. Or a dreamlike mood for that matter. It's also very Wonderic, yes. And uh, and uh, just to add to that, you'll often have characters just looking out, and their hair is blowing in the wind. That's what I love about these '90s anime. Films. I, I said, like, yeah, I miss that. I, I luscious still, hair. <laughs> it still it, it still exists in anime, obviously, but just like the the care and it almost feels like there's no kind of like repeating frames of that hair blowing in the wind. No, it's everything is. It's nothing is recycled. Let's it, it's it ornate. It's like completely like <laughs> complex and unnecessary, but it just like it looks so good. So why not do it? <laughs> we have money. Toby's paying for everything. <laughs> In this, uh, sorry, going back to the dance sequence. So Ampi is caressing Utena's head. There is a bit of a shift where Ampi Ampi is seen getting up. By the way, the camera loves her legs. (laughs) They keep showing her knees, they keep showing her legs as she's getting up, and she's seen grabbing an axe, and there's uh, a shot change suggesting that, oh, oh no, Utena is sleeping, and he's going to uh, harm 
right? We turn over the axe, but no, it's just the sprinkler system on this wonderful rose garden elevated in the sky. The pipe bursts from the axe. Um, how, how would you describe the next sequence? Well, the, the rose garden fills with water, and yeah. the water start, begins to drip. Because, like, again, the rose garden is, like, suspended as the highest point, almost the highest point Mid-air, of, guys. Uh, of the entire kind of academy. And so the water ref- reflects the sky, and all the roses, like, They're flo- floating on the surface of the water. And, and they float over the side of this, like, simple square in the sky, and they begin dancing, and... Wait, 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 wait. They don't just begin dancing. <laughs> they, well, there's, they have a moment where Yotena looks at Yanfei, and she realizes this is Yanfei's fifth form, where the stars are essentially being reflected in the water. And this is, if we go back to that throwaway line of the planetarium, Yanfei takes Yotena to the planetarium, and the night sky is reflected in the water with roses to complement the image, because we all know we're in a floating rose garden. And I think as a, shall we say, a peace offering, they start to dance together to a very, I forget the name of the song, but it is very memorable and beautiful. I don't remember um, it either, unfortunately. Curses, the one time you didn't learn the song correctly either. Because <laughs> it, w- it would have really helped. Essentially, Ikahara is treating us to a music video. And... Just in the middle of his film, because like, again, <laughs> The idea that we're supposed to be working towards a very kind of dense plot, it's like, I'm going to put this like two and a half minute music video of two of my characters just dancing in space. No dialogue, by the way. And what's also quite interesting is there are two reflections of the women. On the one hand, there is the two women dancing and as in their regular school attire. And then in the water, they have an alternative form of themselves. So you see Yotena and Yanfei in their dueling regalia. Amphi is in her rose-colored gown, and Yotena is in her dueling outfit. With long hair, I should add. Again, the long hair returns. Mm-hmm. And so they share a, a romantic dancing waltz as roses cascade over the floating garden in the sky, and all the roses just float down into the bottom of the academy. This scene kind of like epitomizes the whole idea of the film itself, which is like, rather than working with the plot it's just these kind of mood pieces these Mm. really kind of evocative beautiful kind of statements of using images and you kind of it tells the story that way because like within that scene we kind of realize like they are both falling in love and kind of not like abandoning their whole whole idea of what they are setting out to do the whole plot that the series had for them it's like we're just not going to pay attention to that because we're happy right here. And I, I think it's a great sort of um, a buffer for the next scene because if this rose dance waltz, if you want to call it that, serves as an emotional bridge, then the next sequence which follows serves as an intellectual bridge and Yutena gains more understanding of Yanfi and more insight into her past and into her into her mindset as well. So you were going to jump into the next scene where they start to uh, draw. <laughs> well, draw I, I, I kind of want to condense a lot of this because we've been talking for a while, right. and there's still a lot to get through because I there's know. there's there's so many we want to so much we want to talk about because this is a, a very rich, loaded text. Okay, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> no, it's fine. Like your enthusiasm is wonderful. I'm <laughs> like because this is a 
this is a film that I've always appreciated but never like truly like loved. It was always just a thing. Like I was the end of Evangelion. That was my thing. Sure. Like I loved that kind of director statements of an, a series that was kind of its own thing, but with the new funds, we're gonna go in a completely different direction. Uh, Adolescence of the Snow was one I always appreciated, but it's like, yeah, it's good and everything, but you know, it's just, I just don't have those kind of feelings for it, possibly because of my upbringing, my gender, whatever. Uh, but hearing someone like with such unbridled enthusiasm and love of it, it's like, yeah, this this is a very important movie. I, I, you know what, I stand behind my enthusiasm and my appreciation for it. Can we quickly talk about like the yes. kind of the tone switches that happen here? Because because sure. like uh, you were referring to, there's a cl- kind of a different acts almost. Yeah, there's a cl- climactic scene, climactic in terms of where it's positioned in the film, wherein Usuna and Anthony have this kind of like drawing session of each other. Yes, and it kind of like bridges the gap between them in terms of like intimacy. Uh, yeah, um, and uh, Anthony has Utena undress. <laughs> And Yutena very vulnerably poses a nude for her um, as a sort of saying thank you. Anthe says, okay, you undress for me, I'll undress for you. And in doing so, she reveals a secret about herself uh, through her body and through exposing herself to Yutena. And the secret is she has a hole. (laughs) There is a hole in her chest, a physical hole, that's sort of revealed by a silhouette and through a series of flashbacks, which is instigated through several paintings of Anthe, we are we are shown why An- Anthe has this gaping hole in her, I think where her heart should be, mm-hmm. if uh, it's approximately I think right. it's like actually just right center. In the middle, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so like, but after that, a- after that, we get we just transition into this kind of like comedy segment. Oh yes, where the shadow girls were going to give off a scandalous tape. <laughs> they got the wrong tape, and they put in this very humorous. Like uh, Iko and Efko, right? Like Iko Efko, the shadow girls. Yeah, they they like the broadcast club of the <laughs> of the school as it is, and they're kind of like a they're kind of a chorus, like a Greek chorus of like they kind of comment on what's the goings on of the movie itself, and they reveal like a a tape of like such scandalous thing of such like scandalous proportions involving the. Was it like acting chairman? The chairman, uh, Anthe's brother, Akio. But first we get this comedy segment in- involving a I cow. I talk about that. I don't know what to say about <laughs> it. It's uh, the cow. Uh, it's Nanami. Nanami, and what's the uh, what's the chimp's name? Choo-choo. Choo-choo. Uh, it's just random comedy segments uh, involving them as well as like that, what's it, like, what's it supposed to be, like an alligator? A, a small ca- caricature of an alligator. And it goes on for a bit. <laughs> and just like in the center of this film, after like in between two very like climactic scenes, it's just like, and I love that. I, I love how it, it just kind of like breaks up everything. And it's just like we wanted to put this in here. I think Ikuhara is giving the audience a breather from all the drama and all the beautiful, rich colors. He's giving us a sort of monochrome, very pointless comedic scene. Because you have like a very intimate and revealing scene between our two main characters, then this comedy thing with animals. And then the revelation <laughs> of a rape scene. Oh, yes. And like, oh, wait, that's the wrong tape. Here is the actual tape uh, depicting, well, revealing that Anthe was, in fact, raped, uh, drugged by her brother, subsequently raped. And then she is stabbed by Akio um, in a moment of panic and uh, disarray and agony. He essentially 
Does he does he deliberately throw himself off the balcony, or is it accidental? Uh, it's kind of ambiguous because he has a he has like a drunk stupor to him, where he's like right. he's like walking towards the window itself and falls over the railing without like his hands or anything, so it doesn't look intentional. But at the same time, it's like, what? How else are we supposed to read that? He, you know, at that moment, he is a, a figure of shame, and he understands the wrong that he's done, so he dies. Um, and then, what was it? Was was his body right after that moment discovered? Yeah, after like uh, after Uthan Adu- duels, uh, the that's right. The, like uh, the dueling club? No, the fencing club. The, the, ca- the team captain, uh, the team Julie, captain, who's also the, a prince, Julie Arisa, uh, Arisabi. Yeah, they do it together, and Uthna uh, wins after like a very kind of like uh, like a downhill battle, uphill battle rather. Uh, and Akio's corpse is just exhumed. <laughs> oh, there is a cry, and uh, it turns out that the woman screaming is Akio's fiance, and he has been discovered in uh, Rose Garden on the campus grounds. His body is has been lying in the cold earth, as the uh, fireflies describe it. Mm-hmm. And this inspires, like, uh, Anthony to completely, like, run away and disappear because of her kind they, of involvement in it. Yes, they start to say, why would the Rose Guard, um, or rather, why would she be tending to the roses so carefully? And they suggest, well, it's because so she can cover up his body. And that's, that's it's kind of interesting, because there's, there's that plot point, this plot point right here, that doesn't really matter. It doesn't go anywhere. She's not. They don't investigate it. No, because Utena chases after Anthony after this re- revelation and has a deeply introspective moment in uh, where she in in the ele- elevator. It's an elevator, guys. It's a <laughs> where she has a a moment of con- con- confronting her past trauma mm, involving uh, her ex boyfriend Togo and what exactly his role has been in this entire film. He's been a ghost. Shocker. Yes, it's revealed that he is not actually there. It's all a figment of Utena's imagination. And again, we're treated to some gorgeous uh, monochrome colored flashbacks revealing that Toga had in fact drowned uh, as he was trying to rescue a- another young woman that was drowning. And this, this was kind of like a um, like a staple of a lot of 90s anime of this kind of like this moment of, of like epiphany for these characters. Mm. And it's told in a very kind of like Static kind of fashion because I'm you're you're reminded of have you w- watched the Neon Genesis Evangelion? No, no. Uh, there's a very famous sequence in, like, in episode 25 and 26, uh, the final two episodes where they ran out of budget. <laughs> it's it's a whole thing. Trust me. Look into this. It's kind of hilarious. Okay. And the most kind of striking image of that is uh, the main character Shinji just sitting in a chair, his head down, and all the characters around him talking to him. Oh, interesting. Because it all takes place in his head. Right. And it's that kind of same thing that happens with Utena. Like, she's just sitting in that chair and talking to this manifestation of her uh, ex-boyfriend. Right. And coming to terms with what happened. With this sort of past trauma. And she realizes now that there was really no one responsible for Toga's death. It was just an accident. Um, and it's, this whole prince thing is bullshit. Is it, though? To an extent. To an extent. Because there's like... But she still maintains uh, wanting to be a prince. Doesn't in, she? In the new world, I'm not so sure. But in that moment, it's uh, it's kind of like revealed that the prince didn't really matter to, to an extent. The icon of the prince that she so admired. That's the way to put it, yeah. And I, I do think she still wants to be a strong, independent woman. But that, that prince ideal 
it doesn't evaporate, but I do think it changes. And, and Pogba is subtracted from that Kings equation. Mm-hmm. And so liberated from that and the structure of the, the whole structure of the series, uh, Anthe and Uthana reunite. And, and what happens next? A giant car wash machine appears out of the Rose Garden Amazing. and swallows Uthna up and she's transformed into a car. Not just transformed, it's, it's a... <laughs> well, if we're going to talk about, you know, transformation sequences, this is pretty epic. <laughs> this had probably had the most budget of the entire series, like this one kind of sequence of moving through this machine. And this is, we get the same uh, dual chorus that was present in the entire uh, episode series uh, to revolutionize the world. We are treated to that as Utena is transforming into not a duelist in this case, as in the series, but a full-blown pink car. A car. A car. It's a car. It's, like, a, it's a chariot-looking car. It's, it's a strange design, isn't it? it? It's a. It's actually a wonderful design. I, I like the look of it because it, it has like the kind of like a horse's head at the front at the two like wheel casings, and then like the center thing for uh, a driver and everything. But w- this has nothing to do with the series or the manga. Like this is not referred to at all. No. This is just a thing that happens at the end, and for the rest of the film. It's this mad dash across this endless highway towards the end of the world. And it becomes like a video game. It does. And there is actually like a headquarters of the Shadow Girls. And they, uh, they can be heard on Anthe's radio as Anthe, dri- I can't believe I'm saying this, Anthe drives Utena <laughs> across this sort of vast, empty highway uh, on their quest towards, well, the land of land of freedom really and, and again this came after like two major revelations for these characters where they're kind of like finally accepting what they've been shielding within themselves and she just becomes a car but i think now within this sequence we can take it as an understanding that utena is enabling anthe to proceed in gaining her own autonomy while she utena, is the one that she is the one that's driving yeah she's a, she's enabling anthe to enable herself mm-hmm. in this moment but at the same time she turns into a car. Yeah, Ikahara doesn't give much reason. They asked him a couple times, and he said, because he just wanted to. He's deliberately being elusive and mysterious. And so, like, the last, uh, like, 30, 20 minutes of the film, it's just, like like I said, it's, it's just Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> just this mad dash towards... Oh, yes. Shayori appears. She's a car. Now she explain gets, why. She gets trashed. Um, there is then this sort of strange endless spider kind of spider-like cars the, yeah like uh, this whole kind of horde of enemy vehicles that chases after them and this locuses as the film makes that link and this whole castle mobile rises out of the ground and chases them and they have to like dart through their wheels to get to freedom but in this moment i think here we are very much resolving anthe's trauma if we resolved utena's trauma in the elevator, this is Uten- uh, This is Anthe's moment to shine, and this is her moment for gaining liberation. No, I, it's a thing where like you totally see what the film's trying to say about this moment. It's like breaking through that kind of final barrier between them, kind of truly being free of their past. But the way that he chose to do it, it's eye catching. Because <laughs> it comes right the fuck out of nowhere, <laughs> has no kind of basis in either the series or the film up to that point. The only kind of like acknowledgement we get of that is on the way to the 
elevator that where she has her big revelation, we're going to see all these traffic signs. Go this way. Walk that way. And, turn left. And earlier with uh, Chiori and uh, the prince of the fencing. Jury. Jury. Yes. The, the, and they're like kind of conspiracy thing where <laughs> they, they're in a parking garage that, that I guess houses all these like enemy vehicles. But again, what? Why? No, no particular purpose. Why not? It's I think showing the underbelly of of the of the realm in which they sort of inhabit. I think that's what we're treated to. And interesting, the the student council does make one final appearance uh, on their way uh, on the highway, as it were. It's true. It's like a it's like a Deus Ex kind of best friend yes, thing. Yes, friendship prevails in that moment where uh, Utena and Anthea are about to be squashed by one of the large enemy vehicles. And then suddenly they are yanked out of the tunnel. And I love <laughs> that Juri, Miki, and Sayonji, they're seen driving in a little jeep. It's so cute. It's so cool. Comes out of nowhere. Has <laughs> but they, they say that we won't join you now. We're not ready, but we will come later to the other one, to the other side. We will join you, but not yet. This is absolutely why everyone connects this film to the end of Evangelion. Because it's this whole eulogical leap that it takes right at the end. But, like, you get it. Like, you, sure. you absolutely feel what the creator is going for and what they're trying to say. But it's so wrapped out in this, like, strange intention. Right. Like, it's, it's clearly them just, like, wanting to actualize a vision without any kind of, without any kind of thought. It, it's a very kind of, it's, it's like an id thing that happens. It's so out of nowhere and sporadic that it feels like another movie just kind of invaded this one. I think also it's a question that they're addressing about time, right? And what it means to grow up and what it means to be brave enough to break through those barriers. Oh, it actualizes that metaphor, yeah. Very, very clearly and very frequently. I do like that one sort of throwaway line that Sayonji has where he says, I'll be there on the other side to seduce you. <laughs> That's the last we see of them. Uh, a lovable scumbag to the end. Yes, you love to hate them. And, like, yeah, and it just... It, it just ends like it like oh. well then there's the castle moment where we are sort of shown this massive castle on uh, on a truck vehicle i don't know how else to describe it it's like a giant land mover like one of those kind of deals where it's like using this intense kind of um like a equipment like uh, construction equipment around and the only sort of way to for for anti any tenor to progress forward is to literally drive through that castle drive through that motorized castle structure. Like, underneath it, which has, like, an impossible number of wheels. Of tires, yes. And you, and uh, Anthea is seen very ferociously steering around them. It's like Mad Max here, you know? It is. It, it be, just becomes, like, a full-on, like... It's a game. It a action, a game. Like an action game. Like a, like a sci-fi racing thing. It's, a, it's so... And it sounds like I'm kind of, like, disillusioned by it, but I actually just appreciate the boldness of it to, like, yeah. end on this note to because the way i kind of likened it uh, in our screening was like it's almost like utana and anthony are trying to leave the film they're, they're trying to get away from the storyline and it's literally chasing them and interestingly this is the last time we see akio uh anthony's uh, prince and he says no stay with stay with me we can continue li uh, living like corpses and of course anthony says no she wishes her brother goodbye, and she essentially uh, pushes the pedal to the metal and breaks through 
like literally she mm. breaks through the weather and he sort of bursts into rose petals into red sort of vibrant rose petals and the two of them break free from his clutches from all the machinery from the cars and the two of them are seen nude by the way rushing out and uh, riding down this sort of empty highway free to move on their own kind of like on a luge (laughs) yes like there's like they're prone on like the skeleton of what the utina car was and I'm just hearing myself say all this. It's like, this is what happens in the movie. <laughs> and the two of them are essentially driving on, not e- they're just lying down flat, driving on this road, t- headed towards who knows where. They're yeah. literally in no man's land, driving toward a future which they're not even sure of yet. And again, just like the end of Evangelion, it's two characters in a wasteland. Like, that's how that film ends. It's just like nothingness. Into nothingness, but on a hopeful note as well they on have, like the end of Evangelion yeah <laughs> they have beaten their traumas they have let go of their past they are ending their ending their journey from adolescence and entering a new form of adulthood and leaving the series behind like that, yes. the, the whole Rose Bride thing the end of the world that whole scheme and complex kind of narrative it's and like they, they, they lose, have no time for that they lose their titles they lose the title of being a prince of being a bride and they just become regular people and regular uh, women and Ikahara literally <laughs> strips them of any sort of uh, or- ornamentation or any cl- and any sort of clothing and that's very metaphorical they are being reborn it, it, yeah it's a, it's a very much like a like a, a birthing metaphor because they yes. they break through a womb of rose petals yes. and are <laughs> nude as the day they were born yes and they are seen completely nude driving off into an unknown sort of future and the, the important thing is that when at, when she's reborn utina has long hair oh yes in, in a way it's before she uh, cut her hair following the tragedy of the end of her first relationship she now has a new start with a new relationship which is anki and ikahara spells this out very explicitly by having our two female heroes uh, embrace in a passionate kissing sequence right yep right (laughs) yeah that's uh that is the movie like that is that's it that that's i think one of the last shots is the two of them in close-up kissing and then they're shown going off into the clouds they're going like going to an endless hot gray wasteland highway and in the distance it shows a castle castle. to show that like yes there is a brighter future ahead for them yes and i just you're blown away by this sequence by the way because the entirety of the film and the entirety of the series is leading up to this great important mythology involving like involving like the rose bride's magic and everything and to end on just this car thing (laughs) <laughs> that's probably what it was called in production the, the car thing that we're going to do at the end oh I don't know about that I think you would have something more elaborate what the revolution of at Utena or like <laughs> probably the RPM of Utena I don't know what I like it I, I think altogether it's it's very intelligent it's very sort of provocative mm-hmm. it it altered my sort of perspective about growing up when I was 13 or 14 when I initially saw this film it uh, it it changed my perspective on what it means to enter adulthood and to do so in a way that was not often seen it can be messy and painful and 
Even turn into a car. You never know. And you can speed away. You can go at your own pace, essentially, too. And you can be as violent or as subtle as you like, but the unfettered freedom is always there for you. Life is a highway, (laughs) and I want to ride it all night long. Can I come? No. Aww. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that, that, I guess, concludes the discussion of the movie. Um, I mean, we don't usually do, like, a recommend thing, but obviously... I do. Go watch it. It's an oldie but a goodie. Like Lady Shimura Girl Mikana. It's like amazing. The, the, the implication of the show is like if you if you're gonna listen to us talk about a movie, you probably either want to see it or have seen it. So, but I hope that I hope that if you have never experienced Utena, because it is um, it, it is like a fragment of the '90s, which technically stayed in the '90s. I feel like there there hasn't been like a ch- attempt to reboot it or anything. No, like that. no, I think it's too it's too coveted at this point. Yeah, it stands above a lot of things, uh, especially because, like, well, the collective is disbanded uh, that created it in the first place. And and I think it stands as one of Ikehara's finest works, and it's often cited as his masterpiece. As it should be, like, because it, it is a creator statement. Like, this is a statement from a director working with a, col- a collection. Like, I don't want to undermine their contributions to this, but it's like, this is very clearly a, what, we, what would we call a director's film? Because it is so imbued with a singular, perfected vision. And it's also just a love letter to the characters that you can tell he covets so very much. And they are very much part of of himself. And he has gone on record describing his sort of um, personal connections with these characters that were created. Yeah, and I I don't want to keep harping on the Evangelion comparison, but uh, (laughs) Hideki Anno is the same way. Like, he... Like those characters, he's always said, like these are a part of my psyche, and you can tell that, um, like with with Utna, like they absolutely reflect his creator psyche, and I think that's so interesting. And just a few final words, I I do think it stands as a very very interesting feminist piece. Certainly not the only one to emerge around this time, but or from anime in general, or from anime, but just just for the unusualness of it, which is. Uh, I think it's so. This this is what makes such a compelling feminist story to get all together. Is just how wonderfully strange and beautiful and complex uh, it actually plays out to be. You you'd be hard pressed to find a more like ostentatious, beautiful film like That's from correct. from this period. Yes. And there are a lot of contenders because anime was kind of flourishing. Like feature film anime was kind of flourishing at the time, and this one made quite the splash. So congratulations to the people who made it. <laughs> Yay! We we still uh, uh, covet this film very much, and I do think it uh, it plays very well still, and it it, it hasn't aged uh, very badly. I think it does still look great, sounds great, the stories are relevant, everything is timely. It still holds an element of mystery and intrigue to it, and it makes for a very very compelling and satisfying read. And its insights into gender and sexuality have not aged at all. Like they, they're still oh, no. very relevant. And like, like I said before, there are plenty of people who like cite this film as kind of like inspiring their own, like either like transition or their own uh, or their sexual own, awakening or their own explorations into their sexuality, as it were. This series made many a person a bisexual. I, I, I think I can say yep. that confidently. <laughs> yes. Uh, just one more point I wanted to mention uh, because I think it's interesting. Uh, this is a, just from like the production notes. Uh, a lot of the film was inspired by uh, Shuji Terayama, 
Uh, he's a deeply controversial figure in the world of experimental film and avant-garde theater. He's best known for the short film like Emperor Tomato Ketchup and the feature film Throw Away Your Books, Rally in the Streets. Uh, very controversial because of his treatment of his like young actors. But regardless, uh, you can definitely see his influence in this film to an extent where, like, uh, I can't believe I'm blanking on the, the director's name right now. Itahara? Itahara. Itahara. Uh, he's been very kind of explicit. Like, the one thing he's been explicit about in the production is, like, he was heavily inspired by Karayama. Mm-hmm. And uh, J.A. Caesar worked with Karayama Car- for a lot of his, like, productions. Very good. <laughs> So I guess that's going to conclude it for this episode. Thank you so much, Nikita, for joining Thank me. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a delight to chat about my favorite anime and one of my favorite Japanese pieces and films, for that matter. It's it's a pleasure. Thank you. It's just one of those things where it's like, as soon as I get back behind the mic, if you're like, man, I really love doing this. Why don't I do this more? It's like, oh, yeah, life. It happens. It just gets in the way. And I hope, like you, Tana, that we can all stay noble and true to ourselves and keep harvesting our own powers to revolutionize our own lives. And kill the chairman oh. of, the, of the school. Optional. <laughs> and transform into a car. And dance on rose gardens floating in the sky. Why not? Who doesn't want that? I don't know. Who doesn't want to feel like you're <laughs> drifting through space with the one you love? Absolutely. Uh, Nikita, uh, before we go, do, do you want to like plug anything? Like, uh, Where can we find you writing-wise? Anything like that? Well... Sure. I, I write for the, uh, a female film festival based in Toronto, the Female Eye Film Festival, where we screen films made by women about women. So have a look on our website, uh, thefemaleeyefilmfestival.com, and come and support female filmmakers. Absolutely. So thank you once again for listening to our little podcast here, and Aruba will be joining us eventually. Don't worry about that. Uh, we are in contact, so it's, it's, not a, it's not a big deal. It's just, you know, a lot of things going on, a lot on our plates, and we're quite literally a, a whole country apart. So regardless of that, thank you once again. Thank you for joining me, Nikita. Thank you very much. <laughs>